Charles. Welcome to Lily High on Life. Lily, lovely to be with you and I love being high on life, so it's a special treat. And when I, within two minutes of meeting you, I knew that I wanted to interview you for Lily High on Life because you epitomise it. It's like you've been in my mind and you know exactly who and what I am and I feel that felt that connection with you almost immediately. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's, I've heard lots about you, Lily, and when, then when I met you, it was, it was an interesting op, in, way that we met, and so thank you for yes. the invitation. Mutual friends are always good. So let me just let people into what it is that is so amazingly special about you, or should I say one of the things that is so amazingly special. You are a passion raconteur. You do everything with passion and your life is about passion and you teach people how to have passion in their lives. I do. I'm not a, I'm a, I can be described as a passion raconteur, but I'm also a passion provocateur. And so I spend for the last 30 years my life inspiring, provoking and motivating and educating people about how to and the benefits of living life with passion of being high on life because passion is an extraordinary resource that we all have yes the tragedy is that most people don't harness it i've taken over the 30 years i was i was a successful lawyer up until 30 years ago i practiced law for 20 years and i changed career because i could see how important passion was for personal success, but also for Australia's and the planet's progress. It's my view that a nation of passionate people is is going to have a much better time than a nation of depressed people. Now, was what was it that set you on this path? Was there a an incident? Was it something you were working on that made you aware? that this was something important to share with the rest of the world? Well, I've always done what I'm passionate about. So from an early age, I wanted to be a lawyer. And I got a, I got a scholarship from, from to university, late ni- 1969 I finished school. And so I went to Melbourne University. We didn't have much money. My parents were refugees from Hungary. <clears throat> And how old were you when you arrived? I was born in Australia. Okay. And I speak fluent Hungarian. My my parents traumatized me, tortured me, threatened <laughs> me, bashed me to make sure that I could speak Hungarian, for which I'm grateful. Yes, it's important. And and so I, I went to law school, and I loved being a lawyer. I always wanted to be a lawyer. So so I was I was always, I, I only did what I was passionate about. However. I was also committed to lifelong learning and my father was was a lifelong learner our home was full of books groaning under the weight of books my dad would he bought the encyclopedia britannica and the great books of the western world you know like he had no money do you still have it yes we still do <laughs> and so these books I grew up with and if you come to my home my home office now it's surrounded by books and we've got a farm it's surrounded by books and as a lifelong learner my dad then inspires me to become a lifelong learner then I I got an honours degree in law 
I then got a master's degree in law from Monash. I kept learning, I kept doing personal development programs. I was always willing to keep learning, learning, learning. And then in 1993, I went to a two, this is crucial, this is the crucial point, you know, this is the, the yes. career change point. I went to business school in Hawaii with Robert Kiyosaki. Amazing man. An amazing man. And I know him personally, of course, and his wife, Kim. And I've got wonderful photos from there. That's, that's in June of 1993, so 30 years and one month ago. Right. Now. And at that course, there were 150 participants. It was a two-week course. It was literally a full-scale business, a, a, an MBA in two weeks, very much influenced by the work of Buckminster Fuller, and we might talk about Buckminster Fuller because that's a very relevant factor to to what's happening on the planet and what could happen on the planet. And during that program where people invested a large amount of money to come on this course, I was a partner at a firm called Barker Gosling in Melbourne. I was a tax lawyer. Most of these people did not know what they were passionate about or about which what about what they were passionate and as you say I never finish a sentence with a preposition eh? <laughs> <laughs> anyway most people didn't know what they were passionate about and then through the two weeks at that program I came to the realization that even though I was a highly successful lawyer the world needed educators to teach people about passion because the future of the planet required more of us to be pursuing our passion than we presently were. Was it one of those aha moments or? It was, essentially it was. It was really this proposition that lawyers are in business to promote, to, to preserve and promote the status quo, not to fight for justice, but to preserve the position of those with the resources to retain the best lawyers. I, I could see that clearly. In other words, the role of lawyers is to keep those in power in power. Interesting way to look at it, and that seems to be 100% correct. By the way, if people haven't heard of Robert Kiyosaki, highly, highly recommend his very first book, which is infinitely readable, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Mm. It really did no, change my another, life. There was another book before that. Was there? If you want to be rich and happy, don't go to school. Really? I've got it on my bookshelf, so I'll, I'll lend it to you. Thank so you. Robert, I would love to have Robert was a, always an alternative thinker. He was an American-Japanese, Japanese origin, yeah, grew yeah, up yeah. in Hawaii. But Robert Kiyosaki, well worth understanding what his message is. Of course. So back to your um, turning epiphany. point moment. Epiphany, we'll call it epiphany. the epiphany. Epiphany is a great word. <laughs> and so I came back from this program and you had to make a promise during the course not to make any radical changes for seven days. Well, the day after I arrived back in Melbourne from the course, I decided to resign from my law firm and become Australasia's passion provocateur to I get onto that. the education journey. And so this was this was radical. My my wife at the time, so I've been successfully married three times. This was my first wife. Okay. And I had four children. Uh, whilst we were doing well with four children at private schools, you know, you, you never get ahead. You know, it, it's just a constant case of working and feed and educate children. But my wife supported me in this 
exercise because she was on her personal development journey as well and, f- and for that I'm grateful as well and you know when I look back my life could have been easier had I not left the law no no if I had not if I had yes. just kept being a lawyer but then I would be a 70 year old wealthy who knows where I, where I would be so that's the way life takes us so what do you remember why on earth would you do it immediately instead of wait the seven days you were asked to well, because I've, all, I've, because I've always been a risk taker. I've never been one to live. I don't consider that life was that we take a defensive position in life. Mm-hmm. Life is this gift that we are given, and we might talk about longevity, but a gift that we are given and and the safest course is is a safe course but it's not what life is about and so my favorite metaphor is that we are like ships ships are safest in the harbor however that's not the purpose of ships and I say that's not the purpose of human beings on the planet and I say and I I've learned this through Buckminster Fuller and other philosophers our job as human beings is to make life better to make life what we're capable of making it rather than playing the safe road and despite my parents being refugees and and I I decided that being an entrepreneur being a change maker is what is required of me as a human being and I understand that because I'm impulsive and I will jump on something quickly before having all the facts and all the reason and everything else and at the same time did you have a plan or in quitting the law you started making your plan or did you actually start planning how you were going to do all of this no I, I, I had a plan because my wife at the time and one of our friends a lady the three of us, I was on the phone quite often from Hawaii going on this personal development journey mm-hmm. and then exploring this whole question, well, what's, you know, law is great, but there's a bigger game to play. Education is a bigger game than law. And there are many, there were many good lawyers, although after I left is when I realized how much I was appreciated by my clients, but there are many good lawyers, but there are not many great educators. and. I decided that education around passion about and there's a reason why passion is so important because it's a clue to what we're meant to be doing so passion is like a street sign to your the suburb of your purpose you are meant to be following these guides and then if your passion changes that's okay because it takes you down another street and you are because passion comes from your soul you're pursuing your soul's journey to do what you're meant to be doing the reason why you're on the planet now while i was at business school for two weeks i was having these conversations and and my my wife and this and our mutual friend was helping me to get really clear hey what really matters what's really important and i could have taken the safe road to give you an idea i was earning a lot of money in today's terms close to two million dollars a year so this is 30 years ago yep and i didn't you know so i was i was successful in this game I, i loved doing what i did i had no distress about being a lawyer i loved it but I saw that this was the next step up. And when I came back, it meant I was gonna get into the education business. And I knew in my mind, 
I had this ability to say, okay, well then, how will this run out? And I had some resources. I didn't have to earn income immediately. Mm -hmm. I was able to, you know, to stage it in a particular way, but also to start developing and then, you know, we we rolled it out and uh, I've now run programs for 35 of Australia's 350 largest organisations. I've spoken in eight countries in the world i've been a national president of the national speakers association and all very impressive and so it was that your uh jumping off point is the the way to share was to educate and so you started creating i decided to become a professional speaker right so so become an educator but by being a, a tony robbins style speaker right so where that what what that meant was having gone to many personal development programs and seen great speakers, Dennis Waitley, Jim Rohn, Tony Robbins, and seeing the impact. So in the 60s and 70s, these speakers weren't around much. You know, there was in the 80s and the 90s, and then people laugh at these people. Tony Robbins is one of the masters of understanding human behavior. And many of of coached, so this has morphed as well as as I knew it would, to speaking to thousands of people, to running team building programs for all sorts of different teams, including sporting teams, and then one-on-one coaching. And the interesting thing with, with human behavior is if there was a magic trick for success we would all be doing it and it doesn't exist and it's this amazing complex mixture lily of what makes you you that you then ask the question well what do i have to do and anyone listening to this says what do i have to do the next step well my ability is to then ask crucial questions and partly that's the the benefit of being a lawyer so i could i could mesh the, the challenges of human behavior, the spiritual elements of being human with the business elements of being a tax lawyer, a business lawyer. So I could bring the, those two elements together. So people didn't necessarily have to change what they were doing, but they needed to bring a passion to... They, they needed to bring their passion or <clears throat> to understand what was killing their passion. And one of the interesting experiences or observations that I've made over the journey was I know very few people who start a job that they're not passionate about or enthusiastic about or excited about I'm starting a new job and yet 80% minimum of people are not passionate about their work and so what happens between this passionate at the start and it gets killed and the answer is the experiences that they have many in many cases the leadership of most of business of the business they work in and i am very critical of australian leaders and it's been proven over the years that they are pathetic at unleashing the resources at their fingertips australian business leaders are crap at harnessing the people that they have and you'll hear the mainstream media saying there's a there's a skills shortage in this country i say bullshit there is no there are human beings are amazingly capable the job of a leader is it's like a football coach saying well we're not play, we're not winning because the players aren't good enough well hello the job of the coach is to right. unleash these amazing talents and that's where i would provoke inspire as a provocateur motivate people to say well why aren't you passionate and then people will will have some great stories of what killed their passion and then i will say well 
either you rekindle it or you go elsewhere and that's where the the you know the risk reward of the security of the existing crappy job versus the possibility of a passionate life comes in is passion just about the way you feel you personally feel inside you my definition from my first book passionate people produced that was published by hay house is the passion is a source and i'm i am one of the world's experts on this topic passion is a source of unlimited energy from your soul that enables you to produce extraordinary results extraordinary why extraordinary because most people aren't passionate ordinary people aren't passionate extraordinary so an unlimited source of energy now look at what enables you to do anything lily it's Mm -hmm. your energy energy leads to productivity and so if i've got massive amounts of energy unlimited energy i'm going to perform better than someone who's got less energy is that a fair comment it is a very fair comment so and so the question is what do you have unlimited energy for so there are clues because when you're passionate, you, you, you just keep going. You're like an energizer bunny. Yep. You're like, and, and you're like one of these blow-up dolls that you see that are weighted at the bottom. When you punch them over, they, they back. bounce back. Every time, relentless bounce back. So let me ask you, I say, and I've said often, especially um, on Lily High on Life, that every person is extraordinary extraordinary which is why I sit down with people and their past their way of thinking not just their experiences but also their views on relationships their views on jobs and everything all of those things are unique to everybody and it's one of the things that make people extraordinary or extraordinary and it's showing them that they really are so this there seems to be a gap that I'm hoping you can bridge for me between what you're saying which I understand comes with that energy of people realizing what it really is that gives you a passion and people realizing by listening to other people's stories well, maybe they've got their own story. Maybe they really are not just ordinary, but they can recognize their strengths within their own lives. And then what's the bridge between that realization as an ordinary person to extraordinary and then that extra zumpf of energy that then creates the level of passion that goes higher and is able to share it with others one answer a strong identity so the the strong self-identity and the fact is that most people don't think highly of themselves so you say they're extraordinary i prefer a different word i say you lily are a weirdo I'll take that. (laughs) I say I'm a weirdo. When I run team building programs, I prove to everybody that each one of them is a weirdo. And it's a safer word. Some people say it's a derogatory word. No, it's not, because there's nobody on the planet like Lily or like Charles. And so when we 
and, and the smiles that I get from people when they get that, yes, I know I'm a weirdo. And the world is constantly trying to make us conform. Now, what stops us demonstrating our weirdness? And the answer is what we believe about ourselves. That's what our self-identity is. And in my experience, and this is the case with many business leaders, many, many people don't think very highly of themselves at all. And so the question is, well, why don't they think highly of themselves? Why don't they think they're capable of amazing things? And the answer is because of how they were raised. So let me unpack that for a moment because because you were raised by your parents in a particular way. I was raised by my parents in a different way. And I'm the only entrepreneur amongst my five brothers and sisters. The other five, they've all had stable standard jobs. I'm the only one who is the risk taker. Why is that? So when we're born, in fact, when when we're in utero, our, we hear what our parents are saying. We are absorbing information. And let me say this, the reason why we are weirdos is because every person has a unique set of experiences. Not one person has an identical set of experiences Absolutely to another. Correct. And then those experiences come into our brains, go into our subconscious mind, and then that creates our self-identity. And, and for most people, their lives have not been, hey, you're, you're capable of amazing things, but you are hopeless and, you know, you're never going to amount to anything. And so people take these beliefs on and that's what personal development is about people say well this is what i'm like no this is how you've been molded and that's the work that i do taking that a step further it's not even people not believing in their self-worth because there are a lot of successful people that don't believe in their self-worth but they know how to fake it till you make it Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people who are very, very smart. But as we saw in the pandemic that we just went through, they follow what they're told like sheep and they don't use their own minds. What's the bridge between having the confidence to fake it till you make it, having the confidence to think for yourself rather than immediately believe and accept what you're told? Well... It starts with awareness. You cannot pull a weed out of the garden until you realize it's there. And the awareness, the specific awareness is this, and I urge people listening to this conversation to do it for themselves first and then for anyone that they wish to help. Right. And it's this. Lily, what do you believe about you? What do you believe about you? What do you believe about life? What do you believe about the future? And I'll break up the questions of what you believe about you too. What do you believe about you that is positive? And what do you believe about you that is negative? When I ask people this question, they are unable to answer. And their lives, and, and it's, it's our beliefs that drive our behavior, they most people are absolutely have very little consciousness around what they believe about themselves so what i do 
is to then help them identify what they actually do believe. Because you can't get rid of a belief until you know that it's there. You can't get rid of the weed until you've identified it as a weed. weed. Yeah. And so, and so, you know, I want you to think about. It. Don't answer because you're the interviewer. But <laughs> understand. But you start to go. Gosh, what do I believe about myself? What do I genuinely believe? And no BS. You know, this is real beliefs. Because when you realise consciously what the belief is, you go. Gosh, why do I believe that? And then there'll be a whole bunch of reasons why you do, let alone the question of whether it's re, whether there's reincarnation or not. So just to step to one side of that, but follow that through, why is it so important for so many people to what other people think about them? Because, I'll, I'll unpack that in a slightly different way. Think about getting embarrassed. If I said to you, come and stand up in a crowded restaurant and sing a song, most people would say, no, I'm too embarrassed. And I say, well, what is? what does it mean to be embarrassed? It's quite a difficult question. What does it mean to be embarrassed? I'm embarrassed. Well, if I do something that others don't approve of, then they will reject me. So why is rejection so bad? Because <clears throat> from, an, from when we are born, what does rejection mean, Lily? From when you were born, if your mother rejected you, what would that lead to? Death. Full stop, death. If our parents reject Feeling us. Feeling the opposite of passion, really. Absolutely. Feeling. So we all seek love and approval. And not all, but when I talk about human behavior, this is always a generality because each one of us is a weirdo, so it's only, we can only speak in generalities. And so this, this fear of rejection, that's why we just stop being ourselves because then we'll be rejected and subconsciously, this is not conscious, you're not thinking this at this level, but a subconscious level, you don't want to be rejected because you've made that link from an early age that rejection equals death. Really interesting, especially so because um, as I'm as I get older, I care less and less about what other people really think about me, and in the changes that occur as you get older, you start to realise that what you think is way more important than what anybody else thinks. And there's a wonderful saying that says, you would stop worrying about what other people think if you realised how little time they spend thinking about you. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, I could go along this philosophical journey for hours and hours and hours with you, but um, let's just move to your um, your own experiences and upbringing. So were you, you seem to have been really driven from a very young age because you were always involved in sports, for example, as well. And you were always, in, you always seem to have been um, challenging yourself, which sport mm. is. Talk a little bit about what you were thinking when you were younger before you came across all this self-development stuff. Yeah, when I was 10, I joined the Camberwell Swimming Club. So I was the second of six children. My older brother was 13, and my, my, the youngest of the family was two. So from 13 to two, six children. 
and I was I was always willing to uh, to do some interesting things never having to do stuff with the family you know I was I was willing to try new things I went to Campbell Swimming Club where my older brother was and then I also because we were very poor I wanted some money and the get this at the age of 10 like this is child labor I started delivering newspapers so from the age of 10 to 17 which was matric year 12 mm-hmm. I got up six mornings a week at five o'clock 10 get this you know yeah. I got on my bike in the middle of winter pouring rain to ride down to the three kilometers to the news agents to then pack the newspapers and then to deliver them and get home at 7 30. how did you even get that job at the age of 10? yeah that's right well you could in those days now now you can't and so from the age of 10 to seven so seven years i'm out there earning money because so my did parents your father say to you go get a job if you want no, something that's right you correct. Just... my parents didn't have money yeah my dad was working three jobs at the time he so third... you saw your dad working and you emulated as best you could yes if i wanted if i wanted money I needed to generate it myself. And so I delivered newspapers. And then I became, at the age of 12, a commissioned debt collector for the newsagent. <laughs> so he, oh, that meant on every Saturday morning, I would, every Saturday morning for three hours, and I got paid commission depending on how much I collected. I went to his customers to get their monthly payments for the newspapers. <laughs> and I would carry a big bag of money. And, and on my bike, 12, no security, you know, just <laughs> going door to door to the customers. So why was I motivated to do that? Because I wanted to live life on my terms, not to have it dictated by the financial ability of my parents. Yes. And then that led all the way through to, I always wanted to be a lawyer, and then get this through delivering newspapers, I meet, while while collecting his debt, a solicitor in East Camberwell. We're talking about the suburbs of Melbourne, East Camberwell. And it's this solicitor for whom I start working while I'm at law school and then when I did articles with him in 1974. And I met this guy. I had no connections in the law, but I always wanted to be a lawyer. I met this guy while delivering, while, while, while collecting the, the monies due to the newsagent. And that's the way synchronicity works. So when we follow our passion, when we're doing what we want to do, God acts in mysterious ways and we are introduced to and led down particular paths I and we abs- have to be yes. open to them, Lily, don't we? I absolutely believe that. Um, so your what was your relationship like with your brothers when you were that age? Did Were they motivated seeing you to go out and get jobs as well or was it just different? Do you remember how you felt about your siblings we we got along we got along well because i had terrific parents even though they weren't home you see part of i had i can't my i can remember my mother making my breakfast for me once in my life that's my memory yeah because i had to make it myself because my mum was out there working she was running a a canteen for for a workplace tom piper in williamstown road 
Williamstown. Wow. She would leave home at 6 a.m. in the morning from when I was 10 years of age. She'd be gone. I'd get leave before she did. Mm. But she'd leave at 6 in the morning, get home 6 at night. Six kids. Like, this was an amazing lifestyle. My dad had three jobs. Yep. And my... We all became able to look after ourselves pretty and well. each other. And we'd, we'd help each other, but we'd also fight, as good yeah. siblings do. So, but I, but I could... You know, this this being an older per, the older brother, make, I think that's a big challenge for every firstborn child. You yes. know, this it's a different dynamic to the second and third born. And indeed, there are many books written now on birth order and its impact on your behaviour. Yes, um, and your mother was obviously a very smart and sensible woman because you she made your birthday special mm. by creating this your favourite dessert that well, you didn't was, have you must to know, share. I think it's also in in Jewish culture. It's called floating clouds. It's, what is that? It's, uh, egg white that's f- that's fluffed up, and then it's, it's milk. It's a milk style oh. uh, dish. Many many Jewish people that I know know it, but it's one of my, it's my favourite of all time. And I always all you could get was a little bowl when the whole family, you know, <laughs> two parents and six kids. Yes. But on my birthday, I had the whole bowl made for myself, and I could just keep it for myself. So they were obviously aware that that you needed special <laughs> taking care of. Well, I got it at least at least one day a year because it was it was pretty it was pretty tough for them, and I remember this so. And I wonder whether this this still has an impact on me financially. Yeah. Of waking up, you know, two o'clock in the morning, and my mum and dad are at the kitchen table. You know, mum's crying. How are we going to pay these bills? Unable to pay them, and I'm sure many people listening to this would re- remember those. What what it was like for refugee families, or are feeling that way today with all the yeah. That's um, a good point. Way. That's a good point. You know, and I've I've never. I, I think that's why a lot of people go for the security. And coming back to your first questions, why don't people pursue their passion? Because they can't cope with the lack of security, and that would be because of the trauma that they had as kids from. A family that was struggling and so I never want to struggle again well that's an interesting Lily that's an interesting mm. mindset because as soon as we say I don't want to go through struggle again your learning ability drops dramatically and so let me come back to this this important question of what stops people from pursuing their passion they've got this dream you know but they've got a good job as a lawyer got a good job as a doctor and and many lawyers hate their work doctors hate their work but hey you've got to pay the mortgage, mortgage yeah what do you do it and <laughs> so you obviously proved not um and uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is one of the most amazing human beings. I just watched a Netflix documentary about how, I mean, he also came with absolutely nothing and the accent and everything else. And if you can find a documentary on him, it's I think it's a great thing to watch to see what's possible. But my question to you is, so given where you came from, given what you know, given that you were different, have there been times from either early childhood to now where you've had to step in or maybe were asked to step in and help a sibling that was having some kind of problem or issue simply because you could? Well, I, I spend my life helping people, but 
at a sibling level, <clears throat> not really. And it's quite interesting to look at how our, you know, with my five brothers and sisters, and and they've got fourteen children, fourteen children amongst God them. Bless. There's there's been no mega challenges, Lily, and and. I look at that and I go, how lucky are we? It's not, yeah. it's, well, my older brother has, has three children, but two of them have disabilities, you know, cerebral palsy and some uh, intellectual disability. And But the other 12 grandchildren, not a problem. My five children that I have, no health problems. So, so it's, it's I, I think for our family, and I think that's why big families are so wonderful, knowing that if you ever get into trouble that you could go to siblings means it gives you this confidence that oh well right. that if the worst comes to the worst I can do that yeah now one of the other things that I've that I've learned to deal with is my parents arrived here with one suitcase each and I started with nothing I when I finished my law degree at the age of 21 I had no, I had zero assets. And when we adopt a mindset, so I, I ask people, what would happen, and I ask you, Lily, what would happen if you lost everything except your health and your friends and your network? What would you survive? And my parents did. They 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 lost most of their friends. They yes. they had a Hungarian community here in Melbourne. Yes. But if you lost all of the money, all of the assets, and all you had was the clothes, but you had friends and you had your skills, do you reckon you would survive? I reckon you would. Yeah. And I reckon I would. I have every confidence that I would survive. The really interesting thing today is that when you talk about losing everything, um, many, most, the majority of migrants come with zero, with absolutely nothing and no one to start with. So if you're in a place that you've grown up and you lose that, you're already way ahead because you know the place and the surroundings and everything else. Yeah, that we have that confidence because I came from nothing, yeah. so I've built it. Now, here's where where we have this mindset. This, this is what blocks learning. I come back and say this again because this is so important. This is where mindset comes in, where you go, but I, that was hard. I don't want to go through that again. Well, then you're in trouble because you're going to head down the track to dementia. Dementia and Alzheimer's, I say, comes from not only bad health, but lack of use of your brain. Now, people, and there's, there's research done that people who are bi and multilingual have much less dementia than people who are monolingual. Really interesting. And I want to mention, just in that context as well, I just read a story in the last week about a girl, a little girl born with Down syndrome, who has become a model with a major modeling um, agency in London because she didn't look at herself through the lens that everybody else did. And she's been on the cover of Vogue and in all kinds of commercials. And she puts herself out there with obvious cerebral palsy and she's redefined it. 
or Down syndrome, I think it was. Down syndrome, sorry. Yeah, well, that's because that's, that comes back to the self-identity I'm talking about. Yes, yes. I'm not going to be identified by what others say. And the, the self-identity, because people are so acutely conscious of what they don't know, the way that I describe this is if, if, the, whole, if the sum total of human knowledge was between my outstretched hands... Each one of us knows only a tiny proportion of all there is to know. Well, yeah. most people focus on what they don't know, and therefore they tell themselves. This is where it comes back to the yeah, self-belief. Yeah. Well, I'm not very com- capable. I'm not very smart. I, I can't do this. I can't do that. Instead of looking at what is it that I can do. Mm. And, and what is it that I want to, to learn? Do, what is what I want to learn? Learn and really creating mm. your life the way you want it, mm. not, the, not what somebody tells you you can or can't do yes and then and then if someone tells you you can or can't do something then knowing that the person saying that to you is a weirdo (laughs) and that i'm a weirdo you know that might be true or it might not be true and one of the gifts one of the gifts of covid and the woke agenda that i reject the political correctness agenda that i reject but with the transgender nonsense that's going on, and I say it's nonsense, there are only two sexes, but if the Chief Health Officer for Australia can't d- tell us what a man is or a woman is, well, hang on, who's, who, how can anybody tell me whether I can make it or whether I can't? Now, you mentioned before success. So, so first of all, you go, gosh, well, if people are giving me advice, that, that's just a weirdo's advice. Secondly, I'm starting to rebuild, shift my beliefs and start to go, gosh, why do I believe, why do I believe this about me? I'm going to question what I believe about me and start to rebuild my faith in myself. And then the third issue is, what would make me a success? And you mentioned at the start this question of a successful life. Well, the best definition that I've heard of success I share with you. I learned this from Earl Nightingale. Earl Nightingale produced the first platinum record that was the spoken word. And people can look this up. It's available on the internet. It's a wonderful, wonderful presentation on the strangest secret. And Earl Nightingale then formed, he was an insurance guy leading a big team, and he then formed Nightingale Conant as an educational organisation with tapes and records. And the definition of success was this. Success is the progressive realisation of a worthy ideal. Okay. Not the achievement of it, the progressive realisation of a worthy ideal. Now... If I'm progressively realising, I don't. I'm. I'm not a success only when I get to it. That's like saying, yes. I'm. I'm only. I'm. I'm a mountain climber. The only time I'm successful is when I'm sitting at the top of the mountain. That's a ridiculous yes. model, similar to life. Yes. Now here's. It begs the question though. What is a worthy ideal? That's where we come back to passion. Yes. So you go. Well, what is a worthy ideal for my life? What do I say my life is about? And everybody has a different answer to that. Because each one of us is a weirdo. And it's all about how you feel. If you're feeling good, if you can sort of think and in your head, you know, how am I feeling at the moment? Can I smile? Can I be kind to somebody else? If you've got that good type feeling, and that's what I mean by good, 
happy within yourself. Yes, I, I, I would You're rather. Well. I would rather an appreciation within ourselves because feelings are so fleeting. You yes. know, it's, it's a real problem. So I, I trust feelings. You know, trust your feeling. I love that proposition. Happiness is in the moment. Yes, and but to only but to only, but to if you if you like only do things if that feels good. Well, when I go training, when I'm running nine marathons, <laughs> it doesn't feel good, Lily, I promise you. you know, physically, it feels but very you've bad. you've got the memory of what it feels like when and, you're done. Well, number, number one. But number two, I've also got the feeling, that's true, of, of why I want to be fit and healthy. Yeah. And so the progressive realisation of a worthy ideal means that when you wake up, you might not be feeling well, but at a deep soul level yeah. at a shallow level of feelings and I'm not feeling well but a deep soul level I feel on track on purpose I have created meaning for my life and it comes back to Viktor Frankl's wonderful book yes man's search for meaning that if you wake up in the morning and life has meaning then it really doesn't matter what's happening to you it really doesn't matter what's happening because you go hmm this is interesting yes I have a little problem with the concept of worthiness because it's diff, diff for somebody reaching that mountain will make the, the top of the mountain will make them worthy. For somebody else, getting through the day is a worthiness. So it's a judgment for yourself not generally now before i let you go which i'm going to have to do very soon i need you to take you back very quickly and it's about three minutes worth and you've had three successful marriages what have you learned from each one what was the success and the breakdown in each one just quickly and superficially in term because relationships between people are important Indeed, and, and most people say I've had two failed marriages and then I'm, I'm in a successful marriage. No, I've had three successful marriages because success, success is, you know, this, this idea that the only successful marriage is a marriage that does not end in divorce is a nonsensical model. That's Correct. a model yeah. that's imposed on us. So I had 22 years marriage the first time, 11 years marriage the second time, I'm 12 years marriage into the third time, into my third and final marriage. And they were all successful, and and they had benefits and drawbacks. I like to go benefits and drawbacks. They had pluses and minuses. Four children, the first marriage, four successful children. So look at the look at the Absolutely, result of that. Yeah. Second marriage, one child. So my children aged from forty-two down to twelve, and so that was that was twelve years. And the learning that I got from yes. that in terms of another set of relationships, and I had a good time in that with plenty of challenges. And then I walked out on that marriage, and then my third marriage, I was open to it. And this idea that 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 marriage or relationships are the only good relationships are those that have no challenges. I think that's wrong because that's how we become amazing by embracing those challenges and that comes back to our mindset are we willing to embrace the challenges and I am and and you know the more energy we have fueled by passion the greater our ability to embrace the challenge so just very quickly the pain 
and the not feeling that great in the breakdown and I'll just use the marriages as an example because it really is and as a person who lives with passion how do you cope with those times where things haven't gone as planned and you have felt that pain through the um through the breakdowns yeah well i haven't been scared of pain and i've i got professional help you know on a few occasions but i went to many spiritual healers i went to many personal development programs and i learned how to deal with the pain so that most pain is just an illusion anyway if we don't know how to deal with pain, there are so many experts around. And the question is, why would you skimp on investing in sol solving your pain or getting an insight? Because you get one insight and the pain, particularly from a breakdown of a relationship, the pain disappears. The other problem, the other proposition I put to you is this. How do you tenderize meat? You bash the crap out of it. So how do you become tender-hearted? You have to have your heart pummeled. And it's, or how do you become open-hearted? You have to have a broken heart. And, and so because I saw that, I learned at an early age and for the trauma that my parents had to go through leaving their homeland, hey, pain and trauma doesn't kill us. And it's the resistance to that pain that is the bigger problem rather than being with the pain. So I, I recommend that and they're a wonderful, experts to help guide us through it but not to avoid it because you can take the drugs to avoid the pain bad strategy and is it what you say to yourself that it, gets it's, you it's, through it's, the it's, our, it's our reality so it comes back to beliefs how we represent it in our minds is going to be determined will determine how much pain we feel and so that's why some men who don't know how to how to reframe because reframe is a wonderful principle that we haven't got time to go into but when you reframe an experience suddenly pain disappears but men particularly become violent more men than women because they can't you know because the woman walks out on them for example and I'm, I'm in fact tomorrow i'm helping somebody a woman who's had this same problem where she left this violent man and he's you know he's he's giving her hell and mm. threatening the children and all sorts of stuff and reframing changes at that experience and so i and the, the, one of the best ways to do that is when somebody says no to you and you feel rejected uh, one of the ways to reframe that is to say, gosh, thank you for saying no, because that means I'm one step closer to a yes. Absolutely. And of course, the tagline for Lily High on Life is change your attitude, change your life. I love it. This has been absolutely delightful. It has gone way too quickly. And I actually look forward to chatting with you again another time. Thank you so much for being on Lily High on Life. Thank you, Lily. Wonderful to be here. Thank you.